Hey everyone, Austin here. On today's episode, Ken and I are joined by friend and architectural designer Robert Kinsel. The three of us discuss the narrative differences between the written and filmed versions of 2001 A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. While there's been a whole host of investigations about the film and the book throughout the years, we are particularly interested in mapping the character's name frequency throughout the different parts of the book and film. This investigation led us to a series of discussions dealing with subjects such as what does it mean to delay the introduction of a main character, or how does having a series of main characters over multiple arcs of a film become unified by some larger idea. So with that, we'll start the episode and I'll just say enjoy. Everyone thinks they sound like a weenie. It I takes guess that's like true. it takes like so long to get over it. I thought I was over it from the years of skateboarding and filming myself and saying stupid shit on camera. I don't mm. know how wrong I was. Rob, this is this is kind of <laughs> weird, but the other day when I was well, earlier when I was telling you that I was telling a story about your cobbling. So the other day we were also looking at um uh contributor photos and then i was just gonna see if i could find a contributor photo for you and just be like i'm gonna use this as your headshot if you want it but uh i found a whole slew of photos of you skateboarding which were glorious what on my facebook (laughs) on your facebook (laughs) oh yeah there's a bunch of dumb pictures on my facebook yeah they're kind of amazing it looks like you put production value into into like a couple of uh like trick jump shot ollie things you're doing trick jump shot ollie <laughs> nailed oh my it God. Yeah. can we have a night where we just screen old rob skate videos there's only one of them but yeah we can do that how many how long is it like four and a half minutes <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> all right like a lunch hour yeah, like a, a lunch <laughs> okay <and learn. laughs> so we'll have, we'll have 40 okay. or 52 minutes of uh of build up and then a four minute <laughs> skate video, four minute video. <laughs> and two minute closer <laughs> well we uh we skate to wu-tang yeah. Bring the motherfucking ruckus. It's a bunch of white dudes doing like two stairs and <laughs> crooked grinds on like eight inch tall ledges. Dude, you have to watch mid 90s. It's amazing. I, I, that movie's incredible. Is, is, that's Jonah Hill did the skate movie, right? Yeah, I just watched it like two weeks ago. I think I texted you guys about it. Dude, it's it's literally that life. It's so good. It's incredible. Yeah, I want to watch it. It's they, they literally got like Wu Tang rights to like play for free in the movie. It's so good. I was listening to Jonah Hill on a podcast talking about it, and he was like, he uh, he didn't pay for any music rights. He just wrote really long, like heartfelt, handwritten letters to like Wu Tang and all the like rappers from the '90s and like Beastie Boys and stuff. And he was like, "Look, I'm making this movie. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask for much. Like, can we just use one of your songs?" And they're all just like, "Oh yeah, definitely." I feel like that's the best. Yeah, that's such a good idea. Yeah, gotta start writing more letters to people in life. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Cage couldn't write a heartfelt letter. I did watch State. National Treasure over th- over Christmas break with my dad, though. It's actually a really great movie. Those movies, I mean, are it's so terrible, much fun. but they're fun. I it's... watched half of Knowing the other day. Oh my god, that guy is the fucking worst! But I couldn't stop watching. What's Knowing? It's about like he finds this uh, time capsule that's been buried and you know unburied, and his kid brings it back, and it's like oh, it's a piece of paper. He's like, no, you have to bring it back to school. It's not your property. <laughs> 
And then uh, he like looks at all these. He like drinks half a <coughs> bottle of scotch and stays up till four in the morning and discovers the entire thing in no reasonable amount of time. It would take a normal person four days to do it. And then he's like, it's like all these numbers involve the times and the coordinates for a disaster that's gonna happen, and then how many people are gonna get killed. And the whole time he he like finds one. He's like, I'm gonna go see if it's real. This one's in the future. And a plane crashes, and he's just like, their faces, they could, the burning. <laughs> Wait, did, this is Nick Cage. Nick yeah, Cage. it was incredible. Wait, did he write the time capsule, or he just found the time no, capsule? he found it, and it's just a series of numbers, and he, like, deciphered it because he's a professor at MIT, which is also hilarious. Um, that Nicholas Cage is yeah. a professor at MIT. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so good, and I want to watch the whole thing now. Oh, you want to jump in this book? Yeah, I think we should. Yeah. Oh, uh, what happened? Uh, you just need to move the mouse. It slid over into the corner. Oh. There you go. Rob. Yes. Did you know in the books, the ape at the very beginning has a name? Yes. Moon did you know Watcher. that? Uh, Night, Night Watcher, right? Moon, Moon, Moon Watcher. Watcher. Yes. Did they ever say that in the movie? They they did not. I I watched the movie <laughs> first, and then 10 years later, I read the book and I didn't know what was going on because suddenly everybody had a name. Right. So let me start there. So there's a quote that I wrote down from Moonwatcher. And even giving him a name actually completely changes changes the entire way that you would uh, that you would take in that first section of the movie, right? Right? So it says, And though he could not remember it, when he was very young, Moonwatcher would sometimes reach out and try to touch the ghostly face rising above the hills. He had never succeeded, and now was old enough to understand why. For first, of course, he must find a high enough tree to climb. So, and then, the very last quote, the very end of the book, the very like last line, is, Then he waited, marshalling his thoughts, and brooding over his still untested powers. For though he was the master of the world, he was not quite sure what to do next, but he would think of something. Great parallel there, right? So damn good. So this is kind of a segue into this this conversation about the way that 2001 A Space Odyssey, the book and the film, are structured, especially from the lens of the characters. Mm-hmm. And... That simple notion of the book versus the movie, and even in the book where, for example, that Moon Watcher has a name, and in the movie he doesn't, those two types of media, like that completely shifts how you view and engage in that content as a human being, right? Like, so why do you think that is? Like, why do you think he's a name in the book and not, not in the movie? I feel like there's a certain uh, level of detail that's required to engage with characters, and when you're in the movie, it's... It's entirely visual. I mean, there's no spoken line for the first, like, 30 minutes of the movie because you're just watching these monkeys, these apes, like, come to being. But then in the movie, if it was just talking about, like, this monkey did this thing and this monkey did this thing and then they killed this other guy, it wouldn't have any of that emotional engagement because that's also, like, 80 pages into the book. Yeah, Um, well, the page – so it's – Oh, there's the thirty-five. It's 37 pages, actually. Still, that's a a substantial chunk of – Right, yeah, exactly. Being characterless. So there's this like level of an alternate level of information that needs to be provided to like engage with the characters in this. I agree. But like what if what if they didn't give him a name? 
like in the book, what it, they were written, the book, so the book and the film were written and created at the same time. Uh, like Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke were really hand in hand in doing this together, correct, Rob? Mm-hmm. Like they were basically a partnership. Yeah. Right? Okay. But it was, was it, so it wasn't, but the book wasn't meant to be like a one to one correlation of the film, though. No, I mean, they were, yeah, they were directly, um, they were made as separate media of the same story. So do you think they were created knowing that the audience that was digesting them would have to digest and interact differently? Mm-hmm. So that's how... Yeah, that's exactly the reason. That's why the characters could have been addressed differently, basically, mm-hmm. right? Which is also why you get a little bit more information and like slight alterations in the book rather than in the movie, which I think the movie is more successful because it's more open-ended in that's... terms of a philosophical... <laughs> philosophical standpoint as opposed to philosophical standpoint yes i I would agree with that statement actually um i was re-listening to the first um i guess you'd call it part one first part one um earlier today and in the movie because there's no words there's no official context that the movie starts in Mm-hmm. Uh, because the movie is all visual, it's an interpreted context in that everybody who's watching it sees something differently through the visuals that are being presented. And when um, I watched it I, for the first time, I saw it as the monkeys were essentially, we were being shown the monkeys discovering invention. Um, but within the context of the book, because there is written context and uh, by the nature of it being a book and there being words on display the author essentially takes a stance through the act of words being present exactly Mm -hmm. and it reaffirms the fact that the monkeys are going through a um that the monolith essentially uh, allows the monkeys to go through a moment of self-discovery and so the act of there being words present, pre- present, uh, essentially, it, it's it's whether the ownership of the context belongs to the author presenting it to you, or the context is invented through the way that we interpret the visuals. And so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're you're way more knowledgeable, Rob, about the books because you read all four four of them, right? Yeah, like 15 years ago, though. So basically, so, I only read one. In the book, I think. Um, they actually are more explicit about how the monolith affects mm-hmm. the apes, right? Like they actually like touch it and the monolith like is like directing them. Yeah. It's like well, a one to one like magical power, whereas in the movie it could be like just because they saw a flat surface, they could self actualize or something. Yeah. Right. Like that's how I kind of interpret well, in, it. Well yeah, in the book the the monolith almost has being in that it like comes down and there's this personification of the monolith and that it's like it's coming down. It's engaging with the apes, and it's teaching. It's leaving its lesson. It glows. And it's it's leaving like w- again sometimes, and rather it's like, than just being there, emitting this piercing shriek and then leaving. And um, I think the book even says that there was more than one. That yeah, the book like automatically acknowledges. Yeah, that there's, yeah, like, there it have does. Been more before. It's like there's there twelve around the world. It, yeah, it's like the pyramids and the Aztec. Like the same pyramid appears around the world. Yeah, it's this. It tells you that, and even the, though you might have the inclement, so that's why like the book more directly gives you the answers and doesn't give you a lot of time to create your own answers, right? Whereas the movie, it gives you the time, you're, the whole time you're sitting there, you're just thinking about what could possibly be happening. Mm-hmm. I think both have 
very real entertainment value mm -hmm. too, right? Yeah, well, depending on the viewer, I think, because the book prescribes information um, just by the nature of the media. I think it, it kind of has to provide you with information, whereas the movie provides you with this visual graphic kind of information that it, I mean, it's more open-ended, so it allows you to perceive a little bit more. I mean, they don't necessarily describe in the book like the way that you engage with Hal in the movie. In the movie, it's always filming his eye. There, there's this personification of his like technological being. But in the movie, he's just they kind of describe him as being another person on the ship, yeah. rather than actually showing you and allowing you to reach that. Um, what the hell is the word I'm looking for here? Conclusion. Mm, deep, nice. deep. <laughs> but I, like what you're saying though is the book tells you that Hal's watching. But the movie allows you to see how watching. Yeah, which I think allow. I think that's a little bit more emotionally engaging. Because if you tell me, oh, he's watching him, it goes, oh, uh oh. Mm -hmm. But and, in the movie, it's like, oh shit, he's watching. Yeah, and and it's like little subtle things. Like in the book, it says that uh, little beknownst to the two astronauts, that Hal had the ability to read lips, and we're watching the conversation happen the entire time. But when you watch the movie. You have the conversation happening in the uh, the EVA pod. Mm -hmm. Then you have the clip on the outside of the EVA pod. Then you have the slightly zoomed in clip, and then it zooms into just their lips. Yeah, and you get going this in back and forth. That's yeah, such a good shot. Yeah, but I'll argue though that honestly, I enjoyed the book just as much as the movie when oh, I read yes. it. Yes. So like, which is I feel like we're kind of we're saying the movie is better right now. That's kind of the that's what we're both kind of we're all kind of. Saying I, don't, that. I don't know if we're saying that the movie's better, and I would actually just speak I for myself think. and say I don't think either one is better in that they are achieving slightly different interpretations based off of the media that we're being presented with. Yeah, It's almost like um, if you've watched all seven of the Harry Potter movies and then you read all seven of the Harry Potter books, there's... And not, not, I mean, you see, you're shaking your head. I'm not, com I'm not one to one comparing 2001 with Harry Potter. I'm finishing the seventh book right now. As Emma speak. Watson's the only redeeming factor in those movies. Anyway. <laughs> so much is left out. But what I'm saying is that there is, there's often extra content and there's often extra insights into the way things are being described in a mm -hmm. book. And there's often more emotive or, or, um, uh, subjective interpretations in a movie based on the fact that you're seeing something visually. And so I, I would say, I don't like, I personally believe neither one is better. I think they're both m masteries of two different interpretations. Yeah, I don't think that the book provides anything that the movie needed to provide. Like, they're both essentially wonderful pieces of work in their own right. And both of them could stand out on their own entirely. Um, I mean, yeah, like, I think that the information that they included in the book is only there because that's what makes it feel like a complete book. And if it wasn't there, then it would just be like, well, this was kind of a three-quarters of a book, you know? I just needed a little bit more information to, like, really get there and really enjoy it. But the big distinction between the book and the movie is that the book is split in six parts and the movie is split into four parts. And the, you'll see where the delineations are in this whole thing, right? So that's that's what made me start this diagram that we're looking at on screen right now. 
and because I was really confused about why the book was six parts and why the movie was not six parts, right? So part one is prehistory. It's very clear, right? It's kind of the, and we can argue about the purpose of them, but it's, I wrote down, it's kind of the, it's establishing this kind of almost mythical timeline. It's cre- it's connecting the current story to this larger story that immediately gives it weight. It, it immediately gives it a, a, um, a past, right? The second part is this bringing you up to speed portion, which has a completely different set of characters, right? That I would also argue that are the least important to the rest of the story, right? It's, it's kind of um, tech setting the stage, what the current tech is, what the current, yeah. what the current kind of um, lifestyle is, how we're getting there. It's kind of this discovery moment. But I think most people would argue that the real story kind of starts at part three, the most recognizable part of the movie. So part two is Dr. Floyd's mission to the moon monolith. Yeah. And then do- and part three, moving forward into the remaining parts, being the mission to Jupiter in the movie yeah. um, with Hal and the two astronauts. Right. Okay. So at the book, we're already in part three when the main, most recognizable characters are, are in the on scene, right? So part three in the book is presenting Dave, Frank, and Hal aboard the Discovery. And I chose to plot the Discovery, the name of the ship, and Hal differently because they actually use them in in different ways, right? So in part three, for example, like Discovery is kind of is mentioned much more and it starts to dwindle and Hal basically overtakes the identity of the ship, right? Mm-hmm. So part three is crew, how it operates, um, it's kind of painting the picture, right? Part four is building tension between the crew and it's creating the differences between Hal and the guys, right? Ultimately to a climax in the film. And then you'll start to see that the characters the characters um, start to dwindle because people are dropping like flies basically, right? Part five is kind of the post-delirious chaos of after the climax of how of when Hal and, and, and Frank are both gone, right? Which I could argue that everything after after Hal is is kind of one big part. And then part six is just the the new myth, the new kind of the new experience um, for the human race, basically, right? Well, I mean, even among all these parts, you could probably still break it down just to three main events. Part one being called the dawn of man, and rightly so, I would say, in that these possibly um, conscious but not sentient beings gain consciousness um, through the uh, through the monolith. And then, I mean, yeah, part two is pretty quiet, but it's it it basically kicks everything everything else off in that they find TMA two, and or I guess they call it TMA one. But could, par- could part two have been like five minutes? That's that's no, kind of. I don't think so. That's kind of my argument for it. I feel. Like. I it, don't know because it needs more time to build it up again. It has to. It reestablishes you to this is what life is like now, just like they do in part one, where you're. It's it's the apes and they're starving and they're at the watering hole and they're basically all dying and then twenty minutes later, holy shit, monolith rocks murder. Just the same way with part two, where this is life, this is space. You know, we're in the 1960s and everything is wonderful and dandy. And I'm gonna video phone down to my daughter and wish her happy birthday, blah blah blah. And then, 
Uh-oh. Nothing is what you thought it was. But that's also like... Like if there I wasn't get, that build-up... I get the necessity for the like, setup, okay. but like I wonder... That was like my biggest... In the movie and the book, that part seems like... Setting the stage is almost too long for me. Like what are the key... In the book, maybe, yeah. Because that'll take you a fair amount of time to read. Definitely longer than the 20 minutes it takes in the movie. But isn't that isn't that where the intermission is? Is the intermission here? Or is the intermission more in the middle of where Frank and Dave are? I think the intermission. I the the intermission happens midway in Frank and Dave. You're right. You're right. Okay. Because there is a very quick shift from when the monolith on the moon makes its siren sound, and when we see Dave running through the um uh through the radio hall mm-hmm. of the of the Jupiter uh, uh the discovery yeah. ship. Yeah. And then it isn't until I believe it, it isn't until after the EVA and no is it I think it's before we should have rewatched this movie. But <laughs> the, before that. But the the second intermission happens midway through um Dave and Frank and Hal's story, I believe. Mm-hmm. But I think I think what to kind of respond to um, what you're saying about is part two, uh, the the Haywood Floyd story too long. I think if we think about it relative to when the movie came out, uh, it probably was very exciting to see. Um, video phones and mm-hmm. uh, these uh, lunar yeah, ships right. travel over the landscape, and so I, I think what we're what we're actually seeing is, and if I look at kind of the the metric of how you've laid out your diagram, um, in part one the apes are given roughly about thirty five pages, then part uh, two is it looks like they're given about. 60 pages so we go from 30 pages to 60 pages so it's doubled in length and then when we get into um bowman and and frank and house story they are given uh triple that amount of time and so it's almost like yeah like yeah. it's almost yeah. like um uh who's the author of the book arthur c clark so clark it's, it's almost like he structured it in a way to say here's 30 pages of what we know Here's 60 pages of the exciting future right around the corner. And then here's 90 to 120 pages of just projected future into an abstract infinity. Mm -hmm. And so he's almost increasing the volume of content as we get further from the, the, the presence that we know. And I'd almost, I'd almost make the, the, I'd almost take the stance that he considers part one our present. I actually think that like only part one is part of our presence or, or like our, our present moment in time and part two going to part six are really all of our future. And so the shortest amount of time represents what we know. And then the rest of the book is an exponential growth into the exploration of what's to come. If, I, if I'm thinking about it relative to when the book came out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose the uh, the amount of time dedicated to each one of these things is certainly representative of like the complexity of being. For the apes, it was very simple existence. But then, I mean, part two, to a certain extent, I agree with you, but also part two is very much so similar to their method of being. It was just different, you know, different technologies, different uses, but it was still very much so, I think, mm. portrayed in a similar manner to what life would have been like in 
1968 if we were on the moon. So there really isn't in that necessary or in in that standpoint, there isn't really a fantastical representation of the future. I think it is and um, just the continuation of telling that story that makes it seem like it was in that future. But let's talk about this mode of storytelling, though. So every every movie that comes out now, every book that comes out now, um, although there's a couple different, there's a couple examples that aren't the case, but the main character is is as uh, presented up front in the opening scene or something, or maybe there's a brief a brief opening scene that's a couple minutes, and then the main character shows up or something like that. But like, and I'm not saying that this has to how it has to be done, but I mean, it's kind of ballsy for the main characters or the three most recognizable characters. The how you ask anyone about 2001, they'll tell you about Hal mm-hmm. or Dave or Dave or like Frank Poole, right? But they don't show up until one third of the way through the movie. So it's almost like this theater act thing. It's like Shakespearean style pre- presentation where they're not worried about the marketability of these actors or these main characters or these big time people. Like they show up so late in the movie that everything before it is just kind of is completely pretext. But is there, is there like a modern example where that's happening right now where like the main characters don't show up and it's a, it's a very unique way of storytelling. Yeah, well, right? It's more about telling the idea. It's, it's sharing the idea rather than the characters. And yeah, I can't think of any movie. Now. And, and how are you defining characters? Are you defining them as the movie's characters or the characters as actors? Cause this is, if this was a modern day movie, this would be, this would ex- scare executives yeah. to, to pitch an idea that say, um, the 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 million dollar actor that they're fronting is only in the second it's half like of a movie. Like Moonlight kind of does that. I don't know if you guys have seen Moonlight. Mm-hmm. That does that where Mahershala Ali won Best Supporting Actor and he's only in the middle half hour yeah. of the movie, right? Like so that's like one modern example that just came to mind. But like that it doesn't happen anymore. Really. Yeah, I so, but I would Jim say that <laughs> this this movie isn't treating the characters as main characters, I think they're treating mankind as the main character. Yeah, so that's what I'm kind of getting at, right? Yeah. Is that, yeah. Yes. So so if we don't think about it as any of these individual players as being the main characters, but we see the apes, uh, Dr. Floyd and uh, David Bowman and, and Poole all as um, human, and we see human as the main character, we really are confronted with the main character within the first moment or 11 minutes in when the music yeah. stops and you see the ape for the first time. Mm-hmm. And, do you, and do you think that's a mode of storytelling that should be employed more often now? Like, do you, like wh- why do you think that is not employed as much in, in modern cinema anymore? People have shorter attention spans. They don't feel like sitting through a three hour movie and being, uh, having to question their existence. They feel like watching goddamn Vin Diesel take off his <laughs> shirt and blow up a fucking well, because this bombed when it was in the box office, right? Oh, yeah. This shit the bed. Only stoners went and saw this movie because they were like, wait, what? 15 minutes of psychedelics? Like, I'm in. Well, I would say, like, the most recent movie that came out that really struck me in the way that it was structured was Netflix's attempt at the Oscar nomination for Roma. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen it yet, but I... And I, what was, I was really fascinating about that movie was the first kind of 10 minutes of the movie where this long shot of just a grate in the bottom of a kind of a um, a dry like a, a carport driveway like a tiled um, it was Latin American tiled carport and you just heard the swashing of water 
um, being pushed across these tiles being washed and then the water went down into the drain and as the water was flowing into the drain it it framed this uh, this portal of um, kind of an upper apartment window and then a plane flies by and it's it's just sounds it's the everyday sounds of of what the, eventually you find to be the main actor is um, this maid and it's it's her tale of being part of this this um, this family unit but the first kind of 10 minutes were just the sounds of her mourning and I think what what is happening in 2001 is the first kind of 11 minutes are just the sounds of existence waking up mm-hmm. and and in Roma it's the sounds of this maid waking up and doing her chores in the morning yeah I mean yeah that's true a, lo- a lot of this movie is about feeling and it's it's slow and it's quiet and it's it really lets you sink into it and become not become one with the movie but like really feel what the movie's trying to present to you and it sounds like Rome is doing a similar thing where they're presenting the characters as loosely as we can define that and the feeling that the movie's trying to set um and i mean it's harder to do that in movies people don't want to take 15 minutes in a two-hour long movie to set the scene unless it's like this is so-and-so they were born in blah this is their history like (laughs) Well, I was I was just listening to um, I, I was just listening to this American Life episode, and they were talking about rom coms. And the guy who was presenting the concept of rom coms said that one of the things that we really enjoy about rom com movies and why we keep coming back to them as a genre that doesn't die away is it is a unique insight into the many ways that two people can fall in love with each other. And he cites Annie Hall as one of the greatest rom-coms of all time because it really takes its time allowing you to see the start of um, the two main characters falling in love. There's almost like an extended um, 30-minute, they dedicate 30 minutes of the beginning of the movie to just this road trip the two take together, just having benign conversations and calling each other on the phone. and, And you really get an insight into just the small steps it takes to get into a relationship before the pitfalls and before the angst and before leaps of faith and all the other Mm -hmm. things. And I think like what is scary about movie making today is putting that much effort into something with the potential to fail in a culture that is driven by kind of spurts of, 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 of quick sound bites and memes. Mm -hmm. And I think in Annie Hall and in Roma and in 2001, what you have is this slow build, almost creating emotional clout that the longer they spend each moment dedicated towards kind of an emotional idea, the stronger the next idea feels and the more willingness you have to spend more time into that kind of next stage. It's like we we would only put up with the psychedelic space jump at the end of 2001 Mm -hmm. if we were first introduced to 11 minutes of soundscape and then 20 minutes of an ape and then 35 minutes of of a moon landing and then an hour of space exploration and then finally like a 20 minute soundscape jump into this infinity idea it's like it's it's building emotional clout as the as the book and the movie evolves yeah that's that's a really good point because i i feel like at page 112 when Hal is first mentioned and you see his eye like you know this eye that's on this bottle right now you see his eye pop up 
and then Dave's like staring at him like he's looking like very serious which Dave is constantly looking very serious all the time he's just looking at him even though they're in silence you already have that whole built up story behind you about technological advancement and how humans engage with technology and the spacefaring and then this kind of long historical nod to the evolution of humanity they're in this like little moment of silence talking about or uh, I think Frank is also drawing pictures of the guys. Even though very mundane stuff is happening, you have this huge weight of everything that's already been presented to you to make those moments feel like monumental in their own right. Even though they've been, even though they're just very basic interactions, you know there's like a context. Mm-hmm. So it's about presenting something in context, right? So I, I that's a, it's a it's a really good reference. But then it's like, um. You know, as their as their relationships get more and more complex, you like you start to realize, referencing that first part, that something's going to come to a head, right? Like the apes, you saw like this climactic thing happen. Like you kind of know that's going to reinforce or like inform the interactions that are happening between Hal and and the and and Dave. Like you, you know, it's not going to be all like butterflies and rainbows yeah. as you go along. Do you think part two is to give us a win? Because like, what do you mean? Part part one kind of shows us. I think we're all afraid of returning to this primitive ape who just beats everybody to death, and and that's what winning means. Like to mm-hmm. destroy somebody equals food for the day, mm-hmm. and that you've won. And and maybe part two is to show us that we can be above beating somebody to death in order to survive and part two is really about the summation of our accomplishments to get us to the moon in one way the monolith woke us up and we celebrated by beating another monkey to death and then in part two we get to the monolith ourselves the monolith doesn't give itself to us Mm -hmm. but we uncover the monolith for ourselves so it's almost maybe part two is to show us that we can be above the the primal instinct and that given our own ingenuity we can accomplish something so maybe maybe part two is about having the win before we get to part three where it's about all that technology unraveling around us well i mean i think that could still be a win because if you think about if you think about discovering tma2 tma1 jesus and then going off further into space that's a win and then essentially beating hell is another way. I mean, if you think about it in terms of Moonwatcher killing the, uh, one of the one eye, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah. you know, Dave kills hell. He's beating his other and then continues on to the next level of elu- next level of evolution. Well, that's that's one, another win. Becoming do you think that child. says anything about us though? That w- one monkey had to kill another monkey. And now that I'm thinking totally. about it, Floyd had to lie to the planet about the outbreak in order to make it to, mm-hmm. To TMA two yeah. or TMA one, however you. And then when the star child it. returns to Earth, what does Earth do? Earth has all their fucking nukes lined up, ready to blow them out of the air. Wait, really? Yeah. Is that the, the end of the book? Well, that's the next. That's the next three books that Rob knows that we don't. <laughs> now that you said that, though, that part two is is really about. It's honestly like overconfidence. Like when I think back to that part of the movie, I just feel like everyone thinks there's no nothing that can go really that wrong. They're like, oh, we've already conquered space. We're in space. Yeah. Like, It's all about like politics, like petty stuff. Like, tell me what you know, you know. 
we're friends, like the Russian guy, you know, he's like, mm-hmm. no one really considers that, like, that they've really uncovered something that could truly change their, like, whole way of being, right? So it kind of, it kind of shows, like, the, um, the, uh, like, fatal flaws and how humans think or act, especially with, when powered with technology, right? And that, like, if you, if you push it too far, then your entire existence could be altered. Like, and, like, you could argue that at the very end, it could be terrible for humanity. It doesn't have to be this self-actualizing thing. It could be like the end of humanity as well. I'm mm-hmm. just, I'm just if you really just view the end of the movie like that, like it's not, it's not necessarily a resounding success. Yeah, I guess that's true. I never thought about it. I, yeah, I didn't think about Star Child going to murder planet Earth. <laughs> I mean, it could be. I don't yeah. know. Like, is that is that one interpretation that as soon as, um. Uh, moon watcher becomes intelligent the first thing he does is remove the primitive apes and then as soon as dr floyd becomes empowered you start lying to the general public in order to take the next step well, so it's, it's a political you remove, a political assassination you remove the things or people or beings that are in the way of accomplishing your goal exactly Just like hal does when he kills off all the other scientists exactly but then dave removes hal too yes yeah well that's the battle Hal yeah. would have killed Dave too if he could, so that he could get to Jupiter, but he couldn't. So that so we might, I think, with a lot of our kind of contemporary discussions about what does it mean to transition into, say, the singularity, or to have augmented reality, or or AIs um, uh, living in parallel to us. Uh, I think it's very relevant to be presented with a scenario where Hal or um, Bowman could have won that that battle and it just so happens that the movie and the book presented as as mankind won mm-hmm. um but when we move into the into the star child i think we're once again presented with the scenario that we're not given the solution to where once again either the star child or mankind could win again star child could kind of envelop the energy of the planet or we could nuke the heck out of star child so i think there's maybe there's a a deeper a deeper question being raised about in order to transition into the next uh, level of, of your consciousness, are you constantly removing the previous version of yourself or at least attempting to? Yeah. I mean, a lot of that comes down to like raw materials too, right? So it's like if we, if we only have put all of our resources towards, pushing out like for example for ai or pushing into space like we're going to give our finite amount of resources to these few people just like dave and frank are floating off into space like it's almost like they're our only hope right and everyone else is left behind it's like well if you can come along in the end then that's fine but if not then we have option b it's like interstellar we have option a option b mm-hmm. right so can can i ask you a question about the kind of analysis that you did mm-hmm so you, you base this graphic off of how many times somebody's name showed up in a given part, given chapter. Is that in, correct? In the book, yeah. Yeah. Page it, by page, yeah. Page by page. Was there, so if I look at it uh, left to right, I see it as um, kind of depicting where the different parts start and stop. But did you uncover anything maybe vertically? Like where there was there like a uh, like an epicenter of where everybody's names were happening simultaneously and and that was kind of the um, 
what would you call it the the um the main part of a movie. What's the climax? Is that like the climax? Like, did you? I, like, I can show you. I'll yeah. show you my methodology. So, like, I started with the base. I just, I, as I intuitively went left to right, but I started kind of rising as technology started rising. So, like, the people. Well, I'll I'll show you. So the the bottom here. I'm gonna take this microphone. Like use this mouse. The bottom here is like. Obviously, Moonwatcher and the and the guys, the, <laughs> the Moonwatcher and the guys. <laughs> but there, for some reason, when I was making this diagram, like subconsciously, I put them below everyone else. So humanity's baseline is above is above them, right? So they're like vertically, they're below this technological base. Mm-hmm. And when you get to this point, um, the way that Arthur C. Clarke chose to tell the story, there's always a baseline character. So. Haywood Floyd and 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 Dave are this are the baseline character that the whole movie is kind of seen through their lens, right? So there's always like this kind of, and it just happens to be like a, um, you know, a male, a white male astronaut figure that's kind of this relatable figure, especially in the 1960s America, right? There's this kind of baseline person that's constantly talking to other people. They're engaging other secondary characters, right? And then the line above that. I started to look at as their their secondary characters they were engaging with, like the sidekicks, right? So Frank or Haywood Floyd is talking to his his colleagues like Roy Michaels and um, the Russian guy and the Russian woman that are in there, and they're kind of this second layer of character building. So we're getting to this one way of how to tell a story. It's you have the baseline character, you have the person that they're talking to or person that they're bouncing ideas off of. That's effectively like a non-threat or a semi-threat. And then above that, I started moving up the ladder of like of technological advancement, so machines as characters. So it went from, that's kind of how the vertical evolutions, it was like primates to people to the person's um, secondary kind of um, secondary character. And then there's this world of machines above it. And there's, some really, there's actually some really awesome parallels. Like um, the beginning you introduce um, Dave, Frank, and the Discovery as itself, Discovery being the orange dots. So the Discovery is the ship, right? So you find that when Discovery is mentioned and and when Hal is mentioned, they kind of like stagger a little bit. So like the more Hal is mentioned, the less Discovery is mentioned, and Discovery kind of comes back in the end as well. So it's like um, the way the storyteller chose to write the story as well, like, there's moments where Dave and Hal are paired together in very intense conversation and Frank kind of fills in the middle. So it's like you take primary character and the character that's the threat to them and they're pitted against each other. And then there's this moment where the secondary character is doing something or interacting. And then you get right back into the primary character and the main threat. And then that kind of leads to the ultimate climax, which is right here where you go. At the end of part four. Right, right, right at this moment where he keeps saying, Dave, 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 and, he's, and then he keeps mentioning Hal, and then it and then it stops, and Hal's done, right? So there's like these moments, there's one, two, three huge pockets where Dave and Hal are like at these huge tensile, ten, you know, tensile moments, right? So like that was... That was my intuition going into this graph, and then the the mentions of the names basically reinforces those moments of tension, and that's how I went about it basically. Um, and then the baseline character, 
you know, Dave kind of keeps continuing throughout, but his mentions get kind of less and less, and he becomes kind of just this part of this larger, more ethereal landscape of of almost um, non-character building, right? It's just the world. It's the world that they're in. So there's no more interactions. It's just Dave alone in Discovery. The ship kind of comes back as this mention. So I didn't initially count Discovery as a character, but I figured that there would be some sort of um, connection between Hal as a character. So I plotted Discovery very last, and I also included uh, TMA1, TMA2, and the Stargate up top as well. So, um, you know, if you start to draw the parallels, you can see, like, how these characters are purposely structured throughout the whole the whole book. So. Do you think there's any parallel between Discovery and Hal and Frank and, and Dave? As, as maybe two versions of mechanical identity and two versions of biological identity. Sure. Like, I, like Dave or um, Discovery becomes overrun by Hal and then um, Frank ultimately dies, and but Dave persists. So I, I'd like, maybe that's just an open-ended kind of thought. Yeah, I mean, there's like a certain, there is like a certain, um, weight and pull that like like Frank is a very technical person and he kind of masters the discoveries operations and he's always taking care of stuff whereas like Dave and Hal always are like kind of questioning each other or talking to each other even though there's moments where Frank is like questioning Hal Dave is like the real emotional connection to Hal yeah because because Frank Frank seemed like he just did his job and Discovery just does the job of flying but you see Dave do sketching and and you see him kind of questioning his his intelligence versus Hal's intelligence, and you almost have kind of the the um, the utility version of the machine and the human, and then you see the 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 soulful or lived version of the machine and and the human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I've always thought that there was an interesting uh, relationship between the two. Where I mean, the humans almost feel a little bit robotic in these standpoints, and Hal kind of seems like he's the the caretaker, keeping keeping the dear sweet babies on board sane and alive while they're going off on this grand mission that really he could totally do without them. Do you think that Hal, like Hal takes out Frank, secondary character, right? So do you think he would have rather taken out Dave or he was kind of taking out Frank to lead up to like a battle with Dave at the end, like a one-to-one, like man-on-man, like I'm going to show you who's boss or I'm going to take you with me. Like, do you think he was almost just getting rid of getting rid of Frank, like in the pod or in the EV, whatever the pod is out there, right? Do you think that was a necessary, like, move that person out of my way? I, I think he was taking every chance he could get to eradicate everybody. Just so you think if Dave was in that pod, he would have just gotten rid of Dave? Yeah. I, I think it's like um, uh, lions in the savanna. You kind of take out the weak one first. And if you do that, sometimes the strong ones come back to help. And while they're distracted trying to save the weak one, you get them as well. Mm. And mm-hmm. so he kind of saw... Frank as the weaker of the two and then used his death as hopefully a distraction to then take out Dave as well. But it, but it, it like, but it was the exact opposite effect, right? It like pushed, it pushed Dave into like crazy mode logic, trying to figure out how the hell he could kill Hal Mm. right away. Yeah. Right. Just looking at the graphic, I almost see the dawn of man and the, um, the time jump into the hotel star child moment as a prologue and an epilogue. And the rest of the, uh, the rest of the parts is just being the substance 
to the story because by the way that this is structured part one is the story about moonraker in in transitioning moon Moon, sorry moon (laughs) moonraker would have been a good name too though yeah i think it's a james bond movie uh moon moon watcher as the epilogue of humanity transitioning into its next stage and then and then part six as as david bowman um transitioning into his next yeah i'd agree with mm-hmm. that i'd agree with that definitely. yeah definitely. I, yeah so the kind of the way the graph's set up there's almost a prologue and an epilogue and then the rest is meat in the middle and maybe that's just an observation as well well you just described a good sandwich hey so. yeah it's a house sandwich exactly well i keep relating it to the way we ingest modern media like do we do people utilize epilogues anymore like is that can you guys think of an example where there's been a good epilogue in a movie? Like, like, because the climax for this clearly is when when Hal and Dave kind of go. For, it's the showdown mm-hmm. when he when he pulls the plug, and you could argue that the movie, a modern movie, might end there, or there might be like a five minute clip after that where it shows. Like, I'm thinking of Gravity right now, where like, have you seen Gravity? Where um, yes, you know she's she's almost gonna die, and then. Um, like George Clooney's ghost kind of like comes in the comes inside the spaceship. He's like, "Hey, what's up?" Like, and she's like, oh, "Okay, I'll be fine." And then like, there's like a two minute sequence where she's laying on the planet or like laying on the and she's you know in the water. And, and then it like there's that moment at the end. And you're like, "Oh, I get it." But like, what if that was like a thirty minute scene where she started to do a oh, completely other movie almost? I'm just I'm just wondering like if there's space in our kind of modern cinematic. Um, digestive preferences for the 30 minute epilogue like you know is i would like to see more of it yeah for a totally undefined ending yeah Yeah. it just even that opens it up to something even crazier right and i'm sure we could if we really sat back and thought about we could come up with some more but examples but i I can't right now but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. martin the martian had an epilogue you had you had the um uh, the recovery of, um, what's the actor of The Martian? You're Matt, right. Matt you're right. He's like a professor. Yeah. But it's still, it's like five minutes. Yes. You know? It's it's purely just the like wrap up a happy ending. Um, but no, there's, there's the, the epilogue in this movie essentially is its own sequence. And I, I, I really like your observation about the beginning, middle, end, because that's how historically throughout human history, how every great story is really told, right? It's the... You you set the stage, you give them the bones, and you give them the end, right? And maybe maybe this is three parts, or you know, and the the this is six. The book is six parts, and the movie is four parts. But like, if we really kind of break it down, it, it could be seen as three parts, yeah. right? Well, I think one of the this is less so. Oh God damn it! This yeah, this does have similar. Uh, similar attitudes as like standard film standard movies there's an introduction there's the meat and then there's an ending but a lot of the time the introduction is here's a character yeah all this stuff happens to a character what's the ending gonna be this is how it is but this is so much it's less about an or less about a character and more about an idea it's more about the evolution of mankind or existence in general that's a bold stance to claim right i mean really probably um but I mean, it needs to be more ambiguous. If they, if this had been, if this had ended with Dave killing Hal and then five minutes of like, 
and then five minutes, you know, two minutes of him going through crazy, wacky, zany space. And then he's in a hotel. People would have been like, what the absolute fuck, Stanley? <laughs> like, really? Two but they, minutes they might have liked it more. But would they, if it was just like... Well, you said they didn't like this, did they? No, they didn't. But I feel like they would have hated it even more if it was three minutes of him like standing there and being like, here's a bed, here's a bathroom, there's a kitchen. I'm a star child. It would have been like, you I don't fucking know. twat. I would have been pissed. I needed the you know 20 or 30 minutes to kind of go, all right, we're here. We are here, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're coming up to about an hour. Yeah, maybe that's a good place to kind of end it. Do we want to do you want to kind of speak to any final thoughts or or any kind of final final items? At least for me, I think I the way that I see this movie and the book is it's structured to give us time to consider. Mm-hmm. Especially the movie that it's it's presents things in such an ambiguously uh it presents things in such an ambiguous way for there to be multiple interpretations it almost wants you to consider multiple interpretations so to be presented quickly only gives you enough time to consider one thought the slow nature of it and the drawn out nature of it and the re presentation of man as ape and man as conqueror and man as survivor and man as transcender it's it's almost drawn out to give us multiple ways to just consider existence yeah i think if this had been any shorter it wouldn't have had the gravitas that it does i think you need the time i think you need the slowness to really settle into the movie to settle into all of the uh nuances and idiosyncrasies of the movie and really that's what opens it up so much to the interpretation, which is why I'm so fascinated with it. The one to bring it full circle, I was just I was just thinking about the movie versus the book, and I was just this really basic thought coming in my head: a movie you're expected to watch in one sitting, whereas a book you're not. You're expected to read it over a couple of weeks, or you know, in the mornings and the evenings, and kind of have that time in between when you're reading the pages to, to have these more complex thoughts almost like the the hbo model of releasing a show like game of thrones now or something right you have the week in between the shows to think and maybe um the book even though it gives you these direct interpretations um from the author like saying that the monolith directly affects the apes or that hal is a and the ship are separate, maybe that is given to you. So between the times when you read, you you can have these more complex internal introspective thoughts, whereas in the movie, it has to kind of build those in mm-hmm. as you go. And you, you, you know? Yeah, I would, I would totally buy that if the movie, if the book wasn't so prescriptive in its ideas. Because yeah. I think I think that's the beauty of the movie is that it allows, it encourages that that reading with the time. But the movie or the book, um, the book kind of prescribes everything. So there's there's the time between each reading, which I think is a fascinating notion. Yeah. But they like answer everything, so you don't have to like 
sit there thinking at night, oh my god, is it a monolith or a vacuum? <laughs> Nobody knows. And that vacuum is our is our cue to stop. Hey Rob, thanks it's for terrific. uh thanks for coming on. Thanks for uh joining us tonight. Alright guys. Peace. Peace. Hey everyone, Ken and I just wanted to thank you again for listening to the episode. The Table Sessions podcast is produced and edited by me, Austin Raymond, and Ken Filler, and is a product of The Table Sessions Media, the collaborative platform for audio, visual, and written content. Our theme music was created by Dan Filler. You can find more from Dan on bandcamp.com, such as his album, As the Soil Turns Red. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website, thetablesessions.com, to check out our full range of content. You can also follow us on Instagram at Table Sessions, where we post photos and content from each episode. Also, if you'd like to support our cause in more tangible ways, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash thetablesessions for exclusive updates and more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you again next episode.